Hello and welcome to Pitchmasters with me, Danny Fontaine. This week I speak to Viv Groskop, comedian, podcaster, journalist and of course author of How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking. We talk about her journey from the corporate world to being a freelance journalist, stand-up comedy, the challenges that women face that men often don't, why we should commit to a speaking event before we are ready, dealing with nerves, and how we all need to remember to be human. As always, if you like the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and sign up at pitchguy.co.uk. You can also find video clips of the show on TikTok and Instagram by searching for Pitch Guy. Viv Groskop, how lovely to have you on the show. You are a woman of many talents, journalist, writer, podcaster, comedian. Tell me and the listeners a little bit about you and your journey to where you got to today. Hi, it is great to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm fascinated by the things that you talk about and the art of pitching, because in my world, it's not something that is formalized uh, in the way that is in your world. So it's great to have that crossover and talk about the parallels and what we can bring to each other's worlds uh, that will help us out, which is kind of what is my... um, is my life really that has come to be my life so I started out in journalism I worked on the Guardian the Observer I still write for them um I write a lot for the FT now I used to work at the Telegraph I kind of was been around the block uh through my 20s and early 30s um in newspapers and magazines and then I had three children um when I was I was freelance at this point so I took a redundancy from a newspaper job when I was 26 and went freelance seemingly for six months like lots of people do Mm. you know I'll just freelance for six months and then I'll get a job and once I went freelance I realized that the level of frustration and difficulty that I'd been facing I mean I was was a real sort of axe murderer type when I worked (laughs) in an office I just wanted to kill everybody Uh, I realized that it wasn't really where I was working or the people I was working with it was me and that really I was destined to be an independent um and and freelancing just immediately really suited me and all of those stereotypes about not being able to um make things work financially or creatively having to generate so many ideas having to keep up with so many different people all of those things that people often present as a downside of freelancing they've always been a huge upside for me mm. I love doing all of those things so I discovered that um in my in my 20s and 30s and that really gave me an opportunity to live the life that I wanted as a writer to have a lot of freedom to explore all the things that I was interested in and it gave me the freedom to have a family so I had three children and I was able to spend the time that I wanted with them without ever really pulling back on work I mean I've always had childcare, have a supportive partner we do everything together he's always had full-time corporate roles um, so he has a very different kind of life to me Um, But I was able to make that work. So in some ways, you know, this is what some people call living the dream, right? And this is where I had noticed when I was in my axe murderer tendency um, in the office as well, I had noticed the gender divide between my male and female colleagues that for my male colleagues, senior in media, their family life has barely mentioned and Mm. took a back seat. I mean, we're talking in the 90s now, it might be a bit different now. But for my female colleagues, they were constantly having to juggle. I think a lot of them didn't have as many children as they perhaps would have wanted to. They would have only had maybe one or two children. Um, And I could see even when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s, that if I was going to stay in that industry and stay in a corporate role, I was going to have to compromise in some way. So that was another reason that led me to dig more into freelancing and developing that. So that was all working out for me in inverted commas. But I was finding that that something was missing and something wasn't quite working. I had some kind of, I think, creative, probably creative frustration that 
I really needed to fix. And I also had, um, you know, I have a tendency. So I, I have, I present as a very extrovert, happy person, which I am. Um, but I also have a tendency, like many people in private, to depression and anxiety and mm. introspection. And there are, th- I think, times in your life when those things kind of roll around, you know, like every few years, you, you will have a, a dip of that kind, um, if the problem is, isn't serious. Um, so I was definitely having some of those kind of low feelings, maybe a staleness to having by that point been about 10 years freelance. And I really started to dig in to you know, what do I really want to do with my life? What haven't I done? What? And it was also to do with my children that as they were getting older and starting school, you know, they were now about five or six. Um, at one point I had, you know, three, three children under the age of, of six. And I was realizing that I wasn't necessarily raising them in the way that I wanted in the sense that I wanted them to feel free to pursue whatever they want in their life, do what they want, not feel that you have to do certain things in order to be successful. And that really led me, I think, you know, it doesn't just happen when you're a parent, it can happen at any time in your life. But I think there are times in your life when you suddenly have those moments of thinking, have I really done that? Am I really being honest with myself? And I was having all of these, um, you know, midlife crisis type thoughts. And because I had the freedom of freelance, and I had a number of pushes as well, um, that really allowed me to do this you know one push was that I got let go from a newspaper column another push was that a series of features that I had were were cancelled you know there are a number of rejections that made me think I might as well just do try to do something else so on top of what I was already doing I started to perform stand-up comedy And that really happened because I had always wanted to do it since I was a child. It was an itch that I had never scratched. It was something that I had been obsessed with at different points. When I was at university, I did some comedy. I did a lot of acting. It was a bit of a road less traveled for me. And and I think there are times in your life when you, you realize that there was some dream that you had that you just gave up on. And you do need to do something about those things. I don't think everybody needs to like, you know, put a bomb underneath their life and become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> you don't have to do it in an extreme way. But I do think if you don't look at those things from time to time, they are going to come back and haunt you in in some way. <laughs> so yeah. I've, I threw myself into this because I had a bit of a gap in my working life and I had this kind of slight cushion not massive cushion and I started to do stand-up and this was um about 12 years ago now and I loved it I loved it so much I also hated it and it was really 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 difficult it's a very very difficult industry Um, but I did love it and it brought out a different side to my writing it made me more creative in my other work Um, it led me to make friendships that I never would have made and it became a whole different layer to, to my career. Um, there were points when I thought I was trying to become a stand-up and that that was what I was going to right. do. But then there were moments when I could also see that it doesn't really fit with who I am. Um, I mean, we could get into a whole conversation about this, about stand-up <laughs> and how messed up it is. Um, but I could also see that it could become a part of the things that I, what I would do and that that would be enough for me. And so I did six years of shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, I wrote a book about start, starting out in stand-up that's called I Laughed, I Cried, which was about doing 100 gigs in 100 consecutive nights, which was what I really did to wow. test out how committed I was to doing this. And the more this went on, the more I realised that other people are so afraid of doing things like this in their life, like both the idea of making a massive change that represents some kind of dream that you've always had, but that you're scared of, and the idea of putting yourself in front of people for judgment. And that the lessons inside both of those things are 
the things that we really, really need to talk about that we don't have very many avenues or we didn't then. I think now because of podcasting, the rise of social media, um, there are so many different ways now that we talk about these things. But 10 years ago, this conversation was only just beginning and I could see so many ways in which I wanted to open up this conversation that were bigger than the kind of journalism that I was kind of uh, that I was writing at the time and that were bigger than something that you can express uh, in, in one book. Um, so I started to explore this and that was what led eventually to writing the book How to Own the Room, which is really about not just taking the lessons that I personally have learned, but looking across the board at examples of people who are doing something a little bit different that pushes our definition of what it is to be confident, what it is to own a room, what it is to persuade people, what it is to get over our very natural human feelings of self-consciousness. Um, so How to Own the Room opens up that conversation in a book. And I, I go in the, in the book, I go through lots of examples from Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, Joan Rivers, Virginia Woolf, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, uh, loads of different examples of women in particular who have a very specific communication style and acknowledging that, celebrating it and really, really analysing it and geeking out about it. So that was the idea behind that. Then when the book came out, I realised I actually want to talk to other people about this because I didn't. it's not one of those books where I went and interviewed other people or it's my analysis and my experience in that book. But I realised as the book came out that other women's voices were missing from that conversation. So I made a podcast and that launched in 2018, the How to Own the Room podcast. And we've now done over 200 episodes. We've had everyone from Hillary Clinton to Margaret Atwood um, to brilliant tech entrepreneurs like Abadessa Yosansadi and Anne-Marie Imafidon, uh, all talking about how they first overcame their feeling of intimidation about owning a room what they've learned about confidence, what they've learned about public speaking, what things they avoid, what tips and tricks they use, what they wish they'd known, what they got wrong, Uh, trying to break apart sometimes some of the negativity around this topic, because I've been talking about this for years now. And the thing I notice the most is how obsessed people are with their nerves you know, we love to talk, and I talk about this, you know, the story too, that, um, you know, at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than be giving the the oration, you know, that yeah, that's, yeah, I think yeah. it's an old Jerry Seinfeld joke. Um, and it's a truism. And, and there've been, you know, uh, academic studies asking people, you know, would you rather die or give a speech? <laughs> and most people say, I oh, would rather die. And yeah. this is a real negativity around this that is cultural. In in some industries, in your industry, it's probably not that heavy because if you feel that pressure in your industry, you, w- you wouldn't get on very far. So in some industries, it's lessened. Um, and some industries attract um, people who uh, don't have those feelings of nerves so much. But culturally, we have this huge anxiety and nervousness around showing up in front of other people and saying what you've got to say. Yeah. And in the podcast, I really wanted to dig deeper than that and not just say, if you have been nervous, what are your tips for overcoming it? And a remarkable uh, number of, of people on the podcast um, have said that when they were actually in a very public-facing role, I mean, this includes Isabella Lende, the novelist, Elizabeth Strout, the novelist, um, Martha Beck, who's Oprah Winfrey's life coach, um, that they have taken beta blockers to overcome nerves right. and anxiety. Wow. Um, whilst they were in in on tour, you know, in front of thousands of people. So that is one way of breaking that myth that um about nerves, that this is something that if you feel the nerves, you shouldn't do the thing. There are lots of people doing the thing who have the nerves so bad that they need medical help. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it that is really important to me is about admitting that actually some people really enjoy this and some people are really good at it. Some people find it easy and we don't need to hate those people. (laughs) We can learn from them. And I think in particular, there is a stigma around women who say, and I can feel it myself sometimes if I feel like I'm almost going there or if I hear someone else saying it, I love public speaking. But when Mm -hmm. a woman says it, you think, oh, 
she's full of herself. Right. It becomes something that is difficult to say, yeah, I'm good at this. Let me show you how. Or I don't, or, and there's also a jealousy there as well, I think, of people thinking, oh, well, it's all right for you if you find it easy. I don't. And then immediately there's this disconnect between the people who find it easy and supposedly have never been nervous and it's never been difficult for them and who don't understand and who are different. And then the people who are nervous and are then just excluded from the conversation and they're not supposed to do it. And we all know that that's, that's bollocks. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. not true. Yeah. Um, the people who are good at it and who enjoy it, they have bad days. They've maybe had a few experiences that are just really, really horrible and awful, but they've learned to laugh at themselves or they've learned that that was just a bad day or they've learned that, oh, yeah, they did actually underprepare for that or sometimes even overprepare for that. <laughs> um, right. And there's, there's so much that is easy about this, but we don't access it because we're so bound up in these myths of oh no that's difficult that's intimidating I don't want to do that it's only for people who find it really easy and who are super confident and I hate them. So, so do you think that the main driver in whether we feel good or scared out of our wits is is a mindset thing more than anything else? Um, yeah I really do think that what proof do I have of that and is that scientific mm. <laughs> is another question and the issue is we I would say we don't know, and we don't know if we will ever know. Um, I'm not sure if neuroscience during our lifetimes will be able to pinpoint exactly where all this comes from. And if you look at the origins of how I got into this was through stand-up, theatre, improv, looking at how people in that world think about these things compared to how people in perhaps the business world or people in everyday life might think about these things. In, in comedy and in theatre, this stuff is an art. You know, an actor never says, well, can you show me the part of my brain where I can access how to be able to cry in this scene? Right. <laughs> they, they don't ask for the science behind it. They learn how to do it. They don't question it. And when you've been on stage a lot, particularly doing things like comedy that are very exposing, especially when you're on your own on stage, you learn that there is a magic to this, a, a chemistry that is indefinable, that you can't often call, that you cannot measure on a chart, you cannot measure it scientifically or academically. There are many things about, I don't want to sound like some kind of weird wizard or something, that oh, there is magic in the air, but there is something indefinable that you you can't measure and quantify so I'm not trying to say oh yeah you just have to believe me this is how it is <laughs> but I am saying there's more of an art to some of this than there is a science yeah and I think the other thing that I really care about is breaking down people's barriers around this and I think if people believe it's it's an art in a, in a good way, <laughs> then they can think, oh, well, I could, I could try that. I could give that a go. If they think it's a science, then they might think, oh, well, then maybe there's some, some kind of concrete proof that means I wouldn't be able to do this. I mean, it, it slides into the argument of nature versus nurture. And of course, and you get asked this in comedy all the time, you know, are some people just naturally funny and, and some people just aren't? And, and I'm sure that there's a truth in these things. Again, we can, we can never prove, you know, this person was born naturally funny and therefore they were destined to be a stand-up. And this person is just was not funny from birth and they must <laughs> never become a comedian. Like, yeah. I'm sure that there's a small truth to these things. And, um, of course, there are some people who have natural talent and it deserves to be nurtured. Um, but I don't think the two things can be separated. I think if you have an inclination towards something, you can improve on it and you can use your talent to become better. I think if you don't have that much talent, but you really love something and you're obsessed with it and it maybe isn't natural to you, you'll even analyze it in a way that will be 
more beneficial and more meaningful than somebody who does have the talent and takes it for granted Mm. so then you can really use that so there are so many different ways to do things and it's opening up that sense of possibility that is really interesting for me and trying to get some rid of some of these myths and stereotypes which give people excuses to say that thing's not for me so we talk about nature and nurture there's another factor of course which is the environment of the time that you're actually doing that thing how big of an impact do you think is the audience who is watching you at that moment the size of the audience the gender of the audience the amount of booze they've had (laughs) how much will that impact you do you think yeah well that's a very in some ways a very specific question but it's also an abstract question so I'll take the abstract part of it first the abstract is it's natural for anybody to feel to feel something physiologically I mean this is this is science that I wouldn't know enough about but you feel something physiologically inside your body, something changes inside your brain, something changes when you are the subject of interest, when you are up on a pedestal, when you are in the spotlight, when you are in a job interview, even when you are having difficult phone conversation, when you are in a situation, it's it's part of fight or flight Um, When there's any situation where you feel that you're being scrutinized, judged, watched, um, when all the attention is on you and it's your turn to deliver, your body does go into fight or flight and you're going to produce adrenaline, you're going to produce cortisol, the stress hormone. Um, Those things can be scientifically measured and they do happen to us. Um, And I've always uh, believed in uh, this idea I would have read about ages ago that you know, it comes from a tribal um, impulse that we all have, you know, from thousands and thousands of years of evolution, not to be separated from the tribe. You know, we, we don't like to be out on our own and out on a limb. And no matter how much we evolve, how much we're educated, how much we read, how much we're socialized, um, it doesn't seem to have any relevance to the modern world to think like that. But that primal instinct in us to avoid avoid scrutiny, avoid being rejected by the tribe, but it's very primal in us, I think. So in any audience situation, and even, you know, you are in an audience situation when you're on a phone call, (laughs) if it's not going very well and you suddenly feel scrutinized, or you could feel that in front of 10,000 people or 100,000 people. Um, Or if you're on a Zoom call, you know, then you're basically on television, you know, you're being watched. (laughs) So these moments can be very easily activated so that's the abstract side of it and I think that once you know that and you realize that it is a human reaction and a physiological response it immediately depersonalizes it so you you Mm. stop thinking oh everybody's looking at me and you start thinking oh I'm the human in this scenario and I'm the human who's been separated from the tribe and when that happens to humans, they tend to go a bit funny inside. <laughs> like, right. so what? Yeah. Get over it and do your thing. Uh, it just makes it so much easier. So that abstract side of it is, I think, can be quite easily dealt with once you know that fact. And then it is just a process of attrition and experience. Um, I don't think that feeling ever goes away from all the uh, people I've spoken to on the podcast um, and in many other situations and people who have been on stage and, and done you know, huge, huge live events um, over decades. Um, they'll still report that that feeling of dread and anxiety it's going to come back from time to time you know from some people for some people it never goes away you know there are performers like um, Adele is somebody who's spoken about huge stage fright Carly Simon uh, Barbara Streisand uh, didn't perform in a certain capacity for uh, well over a decade and because of these feelings so they do they can come and go even in people with huge amounts of experience but in the main um my understanding of it is that the more experienced you become, um, provided you don't have other external factors in your life that are causing you to, you know, become stressed about right. your performance, um, it, it does lessen, but it never quite goes away because it's a human reaction the same way that, you know, if you go out in the rain, you're going to get wet, right? So yeah. that's the abstract. The more concrete side of it, I think, is is really, really interesting. Um, so the concrete side of it is, does it make a difference what sort of audience you're in front of. And 
there isn't a whole amount of research about this. Um, I guess because it is very difficult to research and it's very subjective. But I've heard from lots of different people, and I see it from my own experience as well, that so many people respond differently in different situations. So I've heard from people who will say, I feel really, really comfortable talking to 10 people, but I can't talk to 50 mm. or 100. And other people will say, I love going up on stage in front of 2,000 people. Don't put me in a one-to-one or right. don't put me in a one-to-five. <laughs> right. So that's very interesting. You know, there's a lot of stand-ups who would be totally comfortable, really comfortable in front of thousands of people. But... One of the reasons they are there is that they never want to go into a pitch meeting with someone like you. Right. right? So I think that audience management on a concrete level of the numbers of the environment of the context uh, is incredibly subjective. And the more you can dig into that in your own world, talk to people who you work with, who experience the same environments that you experience and discover people's different opinions about this and the different techniques they have for getting over that, the more I think you can overcome whatever your own personal hang up is, because generally it will be a personal hang up. It won't be a generalized one. So let's talk about some of the art of overcoming this. What are the kind of the the big ways that you recommend to people who are just generally nervous and think, I'd love to speak, but I know I'm always going to say no because I cannot stand that feeling. And I know I'm just going to fail as soon as I get up on stage. How do you even start to help these people? So many ways. <laughs> the first right. way is to to commit to doing things before you're ready. And this is the thing that people are most scared of. I think talking about it and admitting that it is a method that has worked for a lot of really successful people is, is helpful. Most of the people I've spoken to on the podcast would say that they said yes to things. And in the moment that they said yes, they just thought, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. You don't. And this is, I think, especially true for women. There is so, and I, and I know this from organizing events, from inviting people onto the podcast, from doing live shows, um, from doing um, broadcast interviews. And I know, um, you know, my husband's a producer, and I know many, many people in the industry will report the same thing. Women do say no more often. Right. Women say no more often than men. And and that is a generalization. And there are plenty of men who, who also hide their light under a bushel. <laughs> but it is much more common for women to hide their light under a bushel and find a way to say no. So I am constantly being asked how you can overcome this. And the discipline of saying yes before you're ready is is really, really important. So learn. It's okay to say yes before you're ready. It's okay to think this is out of my comfort zone. It's okay to think, I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to do this. It's okay. Um, there is a disclaimer to that. Um, and I've been on the end of it myself. I get asked to do a lot of different things. And sometimes I know I'm not the right person. And I can even recommend somebody who's better. And I'm not coming at it from the point of view of, oh, no, I don't want to do it. Or please don't ask me, ask someone else, which, uh, you know, you have, so you can be judicious about this and it is okay to say no to things that are not going to further your own goals, that don't showcase you at your best. But you really need to dig deep and think, am I saying no because I'm scared or am I saying no because I'm the wrong person and know the difference between those two things? What do you do once you said yes and you know that this thing is slightly beyond you, right? <laughs> You research, you prepare, you talk to other people who have done it. You So you do external practical things. You do that external practical prep, but you also need to do the internal practical prep. And that stuff is longer term. And that is why mm. you don't wait because that in, internal prep goes on for years of trying to unpick, why do I feel nervous about this? Do I really need to? What can I do to make myself feel less nervous? Looking for evidence and proof is one of the most important things that I dig into when I talk to people 
um, one-to-one about this. Um, I get into a lot of really deep conversations with people about this. I've had people who've, I spoke to a woman recently who said, who told me that basically it's all very well what you do. Well done. You know, how to in the room. Great. <laughs> I've just given up a job that I loved because they wanted me to do more public speaking and I just can't do it. Wow. And I, and I said, seriously, did you actually leave your job? She's like, yeah, yeah, I've started in another company where I know that I'm never going to be asked to go up on stage. And, and we really got down into the depth of it. And it came down to a number of occasions where she felt that things had gone really, really badly and she never wanted to experience that again. And I get that. Like, I've had comedy nights like that. We've all had yeah. things where we just think, oh, God, who was I in that moment? That was terrible. Must do better. We've all had those moments. But I said to her, what was the feedback from other people after these events? Where is your evidence? Where is your data that this was a complete disaster? Show me the video and I'll tell you, like, whether you should go and bury yourself in a hole, right? Right. Evidence, data. And... Yes, you could say, oh, and I think she probably did. (laughs) Other people were just being nice. Well, were they? Were they? Was there any negative feedback at all? Mm, No, not really, but I know it was terrible. Okay. How many times did this happen? Mm, About five times. Was there any negative feedback over these five times? Do, Do you have anybody who you could go to who you really trust and say, should I, should I have been embarrassed? Should I have been ashamed? Was there something? Well, no, you can see where, you know, where this was coming from. So looking for true, true, true evidence, provable data, you know, you can always have a piece of bad feedback from somebody. But, you know, you learn in comedy um, and in other, you know, you learn this in writing, if you publish a book, (laughs) if you do anything in journalism as well, if you do anything that puts yourself out there, somebody's always got a negative opinion about it. So you're learning how to evaluate that data and think, okay, this person didn't like it or I got this bad piece of feedback. Is it replicated? Is it replicated across multiple sources? Like, are they right? Do I know in my heart that actually, oh, yeah, that wasn't good enough? Do I have any counter evidence of people who are like, oh, no, I thought that was really good? Um, Obviously, you can't be taking all of your uh, evidence and data and feedback in order to inform your view of yourself because then you just become completely dependent on other people's opinions and that is a road to absolute disaster. (laughs) But I see too many people who are basically making huge life decisions based on imaginary feedback that largely comes from themselves. The irony is, and you talk about Emma Watson in your book and that great speech she did to the UN on gender equality and how she came across as incredibly nervous and she fumbled her words and it makes us like her so much more and I think people need to realize that when we you know muck up on stage or in a speech it can really bring the audience a lot closer to us as you know we look human Golden words, Danny. Golden words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something you learn really, really early on um, in stand-up. I studied with a guy called Logan Murray, who does these fantastic comedy courses. It was one of the first things I ever did was was to study with him and then do my first gig with other people who were studying with him. And he says, you know, we love watching other humans. We love watching them. Um, we love rooting for them. And we actually love them more when they fail. And we do, because exactly as you said, we see that, oh, yes, you are also a human. There's something uncomfortable about this for people, though, because it can't be faked. You know, that that love that you get from people because you kind of messed up um, or that feeling of empathy, you can't actually trick it. You, You can't fail on purpose. You know, if you think about, you know, a banana skin is a slightly different comedic moment because that's really about status and somebody, you know, in a bowler hat slips on a com- uh, on a on a on a comedy skin <laughs> on a banana skin <laughs> on a comedy banana skin, and and the their status has been lowered, and that's why that's funny. Um, but 
that moment of somebody's messed up and done something a bit wrong and maybe they've laughed at themselves or maybe they've gone a bit red in the face um, or maybe they've actually done that thing that we've all done of like pretending it didn't happen and covering it up, but actually Ooh, everyone yeah. can see it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we love to see those things because we see that they are real and that they're authentic. You know, we love, we love authenticity. We love, we know it when we see it. Um, it's also very subjective, but, <laughs> but we do know it when we see it and we love it, but it's, it's impossible to fake it. That's why it's called authenticity. Right. So I think people feel very intimidated because they know they can't be in control of it. And anything that you don't feel in control of, you immediately think, oh, well, I don't want to do that because I can't be intentional about it. (laughs) So learning to be less intentional and to let it be uh, is incredibly valuable. Obviously, you don't want to be... I worry about some people using these things for nefarious ends. (laughs) And you don't want to Mm, be... yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be trying to be authentic or trying to mess up because then everyone would think hey what a great guy you know he doesn't mean mind being seen as a fool like these things have to be they have to be genuine otherwise they don't work and it's that aspect of you know I don't want to get too hippie or religious about this but you know they're saying let go let God you know let go let let there be something something unexpected let there be something that you can't control Uh, and really that is about ego you know all of the things that we're talking about in this are about ego and saying oh you know yeah my ego was a bit hurt then or that was a bit stupid of me wasn't it but that's okay it's also a great way I think to to help people who are nervous I mean I meet people who are nervous who over prepare and they've got a you know a one hour pitch and they memorize every single line of their script. And if they get asked a question in the middle of it, it totally throws them off. And they almost get annoyed at the client for asking a question and want to get it out of the way so they can get back on their script as quickly as possible. And actually, it's much more enjoyable for the audience if we yeah, allow things to happen that will happen. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of this in, um, in improv. Um, which is really the, if you really want to learn about spontaneity and letting things go, then, Mm. you know, improv and improv comedy is the place to look at that. Um, There's a book called Impro by Keith Johnston um, that really digs into how to, how to open yourself to those moments of, of, of spontaneity um, of things opening up. Um, And he talks a lot about, the school system and education and how in school we are basically taught do this thing get it right and then you'll get a big fat tick but you must right. do the thing and you must do the thing at the right time and you must do that in the way that you were taught and it's not like when you're in an exam somebody rushes in in the middle of the, like saying you know I, I studied languages a lot at school right that was my thing but and I would have my like French exam where, where I had to go and speak French. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love speaking languages. And so pro- they could ask me anything and I would be able to answer. I would be able to answer it um, because I just would make up something. Um, right. But generally, that's not what you're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to go. I see my children being taught it now. You're supposed to go into your language oral and parrot the phrases that you were taught to say which is not what happens when you then go to France and somebody asks you something (laughs) like it's not real life but it's not like you sit in an exam and in the middle of the exam somebody rushes in and says to you can you just quickly tell me how to say this or can you just quickly do this equation or can you just quickly tell me three elements from the periodical table (laughs) nobody we don't often get put on the spot in the school system we get a lot of do this thing, do it like this, and then you'll get a big fat tick, right? Right. And I'm not trying to say, oh, yeah, make me education minister. Like, I have no idea how you fix that. (laughs) I have no idea. It's a huge, huge task. Um, But it is, and I I do think people have been having this conversation um, for a long time. You know, this is, some of this crosses into Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset um, versus fixed mindset. Um, 
there's a lot of conversation around this topic that has been for the last 20 years. I think that things are changing. But in in my generation, you know, we we come we recognize that stereotype of learn this thing, parrot it, get a big fat tick. And right. when people are doing particularly public speaking and then they and they don't want to face that Q&A moment of unpredictability and well you didn't say this was going to be on the test. Right. Um, that you know we really mistake school for real life and you're not in school anymore. <laughs> you're not. Right. Sorry. Um and that's bad news for though like, I did well in school and I enjoyed being able to be like oh yeah I've studied for the test. I will I will give you what you want. Thank you for my big fat tick. Like I was good at that. <laughs> and there are other people like I love people like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, he the entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur. He he talks all the time, like, I hated school. Like school was the worst years of my life. I didn't have a single happy day until I was like 16 or 18 or whatever, and then I could leave school and never have to think about any of those things ever again. <laughs> but he's a absolute consummate improviser. So I think it, some of it is down to personality. Some of it is down to talents and what you're interested in. But some of it is down to conversations like this, when if you were the kind of person who at school or through your education was used to always acing the test or always being really well prepared. You know, there's a thing in um, in uh, the way that we talk about women that the coach Tara Moore, who I absolutely love her work. Um, she's got a brilliant book called playing big, um, that is really useful for women to read. She calls this good girl syndrome. You know, I, I, I think it works for men as well. It's about anybody who's got trapped in that kind of good pupil mentality that doesn't really let lend itself um, in particular to the creative industries. Right. Uh, you do have to be able to improvise. You do have to be able to look people in the eye and think, are they getting this or did I actually go in a completely wrong direction and they're not really listening to me at all now? Or actually I'm saying something that's offending them. You know, you, you have to be able to read the situation and pivot. Uh, and that's exactly, I imagine, because I'm not an, a visual artist, <laughs> but I imagine that that's exactly what you learn in the visual arts is, oh yeah, this color isn't working. I'm going to morph it into that color. You know, it's, yeah. it's yeah. learning that you can take bits from other people's disciplines and use them to open up the way that you see things. Now, we've mentioned your book, How to Own the Room, and we've mentioned women a few times as well. The actual title, the full title of your book is How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking. So let's just talk about that for a second. Why did you aim this book at women? Yeah, that is the full title of the book, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking, subtitle. There is a secret invisible bracket, which is um, also applicable to men. Um, so I will explain that. Um, I chose to write a book about public speaking, although I'd really hate the expression public speaking. I think it's so off-putting it makes you sound like you need to go to Eton. But let's call it that because that's what everybody calls it. So I wanted to write a book about public speaking that was for women about women and by a woman and the reason I wanted to do that was because it didn't exist I first started looking into this a couple of years before I wrote the book um, it was also alongside the time when I was learning a lot myself in stand-up and when I was doing my Edinburgh shows I was constantly looking for advice and information and anything that would give me an in and, and I've become obsessed with it as well. I find it so fascinating. It's a huge, such a fascinating part of human psychology. You know, how do we interact with each other in these situations? And everything that I could find, it either completely ignored women or there were a very small number of female examples. So if you go to any books about speech writing, about public speaking, they're really going to focus on kind of Winston Churchill um, there's going to be loads of stuff about I have a dream. You know, it's all going to be about those because a lot of it is fo focused as well traditionally on politics. Right. And obviously, you know, until probably 30 or 40 years ago, politics was completely dominated by men. Um, it, you know, I'm not kind of really blaming anybody for this. It is how it is. We can't change the past. Um, of course, we can change how we look at the past, but we can't change what actually happened and what was actually reported. Um, the focus and all of the information and all of the data 
Um, all of the historical record about speaking, and also true to a huge extent as well in the entertainment industry, in comedy. Um, a lot of the most prominent stuff is about men. And if women are there, then they're either an anomaly or an outlier or a footnote. Um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt is somebody who clearly was a brilliant per- uh, public speaker. Um, so that she would often be mentioned in these things. But generally, you know, women were always the footnote. So I, in just a kind of contrarian kind of way, thought, well, I'm just going to write a thing where men are the footnote. So it's not true that there are no men in the book. Um, They don't form the focus of it. But I certainly mention, you know, Barack Obama. (laughs) I mention lots of men who are inspiring. I'm not trying to say for a second that there's nothing to learn from men. There's everything to learn from human beings. (laughs) But I wanted to create a space where we just look at women for a minute. And to be really clear for anyone listening to this, I have read the book and I learned so much on every single page and every single word. So if you're a man, read the book. Um, uh, You know, it's for all genders. A follow on question. I wonder if you think that women actually face different challenges to men in regards to public speaking. Yeah, this is a really important question that I've faced a lot. When I was writing it, I was thinking about this. And when the, since the book has come out, I've thought about it a lot. And we've talked about it a lot on the podcast. Um, I did an episode on the podcast with the TV presenter, Sandy Toxvig. And very often uh, when you go and interview somebody, they, don't, they can't necessarily remember what the next interview that they're doing is. And, and or I, when I did Sandy Toxvig, actually, I was... Uh, I was doing an on-stage event with her and we did the podcast beforehand. And so I said to her, oh, yeah, we're going to do this podcast now. We're just, we're just going to do this in the green room. This had all been agreed. And so we sat down. And as we started talking, she said, hang on a minute, Viv, what is this called, this podcast, How to Own the Room? And what is for women? And you mostly, in- I, do, I don't only interview women, but I mostly interview women, like 99%. Um, and you only interview women? And I was like, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's what it is. And she, Sandy Toxie just looked at me and she said, do you think women can't own the room? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. And in a way, that's what the whole, this whole conversation is about, is that no one is saying that women can't do this or that they need special help. No one is really even saying that if there is a context for women that is different, that women can't overcome it. No one is necessarily agreeing about exactly what that context is. I mean, goodness knows, I don't think we all agree about how much this context matters, uh, matters on, on a grand scale or matters to you personally. But you can't deny that it is different for women. You, you can't. Like you can on an individual level. And I've done so many events where there has been a i've i've given a long uh hopefully entertaining <laughs> um talk about um pub, about how to own the room and all the women i've interviewed on the podcast and about comedy and about all these ideas that we're talking about and a man will this has happened to me on many occasions a man will stand up at the back and say i don't understand why you have to do this haven't we had enough women prime ministers and this is when we'd actually only had two <laughs> This was during the time of Theresa May. We've now had three. So maybe they would stand up all the more. Um, The third one was mercifully short-lived. Yeah, we don't talk about that. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Um, So I get it that on an individual level, when people are outliers, context is often irrelevant. And the more that you can think, let me personally make this context an irrelevance to myself. (laughs) Like the more you can think that, the more useful it is. And you can just dig into whatever you were brought to do here as an individual and get on with it. But you cannot deny context. And because how else can it be? How can it be that, you know, we still have a minority of women on FTSE 100 boards after 
30, 40, 50 years of talking about it. And it's so boring. I mean, it's so boring. And the data will go forward one year and back the next, forward a bit more than one year, and then two steps back the next, back and forth, back and forth. And the reason why we do need to talk about this and not ignore it, actually, ignore it on a personal level if you want to, on a macro level, you can't ignore it, um, is because it replicates across so many sectors of the population. It's not just about women. You know, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of the word intersectionality. I wish that we didn't have to think about this. <laughs> um, it's also technical and annoying. Nobody likes saying the word intersectionality and nobody likes saying the, the word patriarchy. They're incredibly no. boring and annoying. And I, I only get to say that because I'm, you know, cisgendered, straight, married, heterosexual, white woman, middle class, right. white woman with posh boys who buys her clothes from Bowdoin. <laughs> like, I get to talk about these things. But these things are real. They are real. And they are replicated in data. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to keep this conversation initially and predominantly about women and for women was to acknowledge that context. And often I do come, clash with people on the podcast about this. You know, um, the American writer and thinker Vivian Gornick um, was really saying, you know, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be talking about this. You know, we, we've been talking about this. We talked about this in the 1950s. Why are you still right. talking about it now? <laughs> Which is brilliant. Like, I love it when people remind us of that because it is true. Yeah. But for me, the, most important and most optimistic and hopeful thing that we can remember is that you don't have to be a stereotype yourself and you don't have to be trapped inside a stereotype you can just do your thing but that doesn't mean that you get to ignore the fact that stereotypes exist now you've had some amazing guests on your podcast you've you've mentioned a few of them already and the podcast came after the book and the book feels a complete work. You can you read it and you learn so much and you can apply it. But I assume you've learned so much more from doing the 200 hours plus of <laughs> podcasting since then. Are there any sort of key learnings from any of your guests that just made you think, wow, that is gold? Yeah, so many one of the most striking things for me is not to do with any specific tips or tricks, although I will try to tell you some in a minute because I know that's what people are always hanging on for. <laughs> it's something more um, more general, but that we can apply in any situation. It's, it's to do with people's energy. The thing I've really learned from the podcast is that we all bring a different energy. We all have some, you know, I'm sure that there's some really um, like hippie spiritual way of th talking about this, like calling it somebody's aura. And some people say, oh, I can see the color of your aura. I mean, I'm not saying like, oh, I could see the color of Hillary Clinton's aura and it was purple right. and her spirit animal is a pigeon. I mean, I'm not saying that, but there's a certain energy and presence uh, that, different kinds of people bring and I always knew this because you know I've interviewed hundreds of people because I was a journalist in print for years before I did um, audio and broadcast interviews so I always knew that people people bring this I think in podcasting in particular you really notice it because the conversation is quite intimate whether it is a digital conversation down the line or whether it's face to face and because the podcast is quite niche and we're going straight into um, tell me about a moment when you felt insecure. Tell me about mm. how you prepare for like a half hour presentation. What notes do you take on stage with you? Do you have bullet points? You're going to have slides. Like it goes quite deep, quite fast. So it's quite intense yeah. and there's nowhere for anyone to hide. So people immediately are very much themselves and you learn that everybody has this own unique energy. And sometimes I can feel that somebody's holding something back and they're not quite, they're giving a version of themselves. And other times, not very often, that doesn't happen very often, but other times I just know, oh yeah, yeah, this, this is, you, you just, 
this is you. <laughs> and I yeah. think the more that we can all think about how we can be that person in interactions and just bring that energy, just, you know, this is horrible. I'm, I'm always trying to write about this, how to fix it. Um, this horrible idea that we're always being told, just be yourself. I'm sure you get told it in pitching. Just be yourself. Yep. I mean, it's bullshit, isn't it? What on earth does that mean? What does it mean? <laughs> and I do think this energy is a part of that. So how can you really bring the energy that you would bring to a conversation with somebody that you love, to a conversation with somebody that you trust, to the way that you speak to your child on, on a good day when you're having a good interaction with them, to the people, you know, everybody, everybody has somebody who thinks they're great. even. Yeah the most terrible and awful of people and even the most kind of fragile and and lonely and, and, and problematic kind of people, right? Everybody has somebody who loves them. Everybody has somebody who makes them feel okay. It can just be one person. If we could all bring that same energy and that same trust into every interaction, everything would be so much easier. And I know that that sounds probably quite hippie and it's very difficult to bring that energy to the Q4 marketing report. <laughs> but <laughs> if we could break down this, what you were saying before, Danny, about, well, I've delivered my presentation word for word. What do you mean you've got questions? <laughs> That's the opposite of that energy. And of course, you can't go into a professional working scenario where your career and your livelihoods and your money and everything is on the line and say, hey, guys, I'm feeling really great energy today. Let's just chat. <laughs> of course, you can't do that. But if you can infuse your professional message with that, that's that's where things really work. That's where things really mm. happen. Um, more practical things. I will take the most golden moment from Hillary Clinton, she recalled her first ever experience of public speaking, which would have been when she was about 14 or 15. And I guess in American schools, um, I've asked lots of guests about this, actually, and they say that it is a bit of a cliche, but I think it's also a truism. Um, in American schools, there is more public speaking. So there is more public speaking than there is in the British system. So generally speaking, she had done public speaking at school, as I think a lot of Americans of her generation would have done. But she chose a special public speaking module at school because she had an idea of what she wanted to do with her career she thought she probably wanted right. to be a lawyer um so she chose this module but it was a module that was seen to be really really easy to pass so everyone else in the class was not interested in it and they didn't want to become lawyers and they were mostly what she would describe as sports jocks so i think she was one of the only women in the class and she was the only person who was really taking it seriously so when she first stood up to do her public speaking in this class she just got relentlessly heckled and um, by all of these these guys wow. from the football team just shouting at her and being horrible to her. And and that was her experience. And she really learned to laugh it off. She learned not everyone's always going to take things in the way that you've intended it. Not everyone's going to be on the same page as you. But it doesn't really matter. And you can still get up and say your thing and be barracked by people, right. be heckled yeah. by people. And it doesn't matter and it's going to be okay. And that's an amazing early lesson to learn is not, don't be put off. It's a really basic, basic, simple human lesson. But I mean, I guess her career is one whole long lesson of like, don't be put off. And even yeah. what happened to her in 2016 took her a moment to bounce back from it. I met her in uh, yeah. 2019, but eventually she came around to don't be put off. <laughs> and yeah. I do think that is really, really simple, ultimate lesson. Tell us more about where we can we can hear the podcast and buy your book and all of that good stuff. The book is called How to Own the Room, Women in the Art of Brilliant Speaking. Um, men are also welcome to it. Uh, and the podcast is called How to Own the Room. And I would love to continue this conversation in any way. So I'm always interested to know who's doing really well in their public speaking who's had an insight who's seen something interesting 
um, and I can be found on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and if Twitter still exists when this goes out and all the other channels so do get in touch with me Um, I think it's really important that this is a really open conversation that one of the reasons I started this conversation is because I don't want this information to be held by gatekeepers to be held by people who do this stuff all of the time in their own separate little space but other people don't get access to it so the more open this conversation is the better well I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I can't thank you enough for giving me your time any final words of wisdom the Final word of wisdom I will leave you with is a favourite tip of mine that I use in stand-up still, um, or if I was doing anything difficult on stage or or if I was having a bad day, and it's an immediate calming of your nervous system, and it's called brain and stomach, breathe through feet. You take a moment to take yourself off away from other people. You can sit down and you can stand up. In theory, you need to close your eyes for this, but you don't have to. You could even do it in a meeting if you suddenly have a moment of, oh, I just don't want to be here or this is just too difficult for me today. Just think to yourself, brain and stomach. So you take your thoughts out of your brain and you push them down, brain and stomach. And then imagine the soles of your feet on the floor and imagine that you're breathing up right through into the whole of your body through the soles of your feet, brain and stomach, breathe through feet, brain and stomach, breathe through feet. If you can really lean into that, it takes you out of your head and puts you back in your body, which immediately puts you in a more relaxed state and makes you feel better able to handle a difficult situation. Amazing. Thank you so much, Viv. Thank you, Danny. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.